Welcome to this week's bonus episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. In this episode, Blood Associate Editor Dr. Mario Cazola introduces his colleagues, Dr. Robert Brodsky, Dr. Wilma Barcellini, and Dr. Sigbjorn Bernson to discuss the latest treatments in acquired hemolytic anemia. I am Mario Cazzola, professor of hematology at the University of Pavia, Pavia, Italy. I am currently an associate editor for Blood. This review series deals with treatment of selected acquired hemolytic anemias, that is, anemias caused by excessive destruction of circulating red blood cells. We chose this topic because there have been significant therapeutic advances in the field in the last few years, and we wanted to update our readership, particularly our clinical readers. In compiling the content for this review series, our top goal was to offer our clinical readers information and guidance regarding diagnosis and treatment of selected hemolytic anemias, mainly through articles written by expert clinicians. And we identified four articles. How I treat warm autoimmune anemia, written by Vilma Barcellini and Bruno Fattizzo. How I treat cold agglutinin disease, written by Sigbjorn Berensen. How I Treat Paroxysmal Nocturnal Hemoglobinuria, written by Robert Brodsky, and How I Treat Microangiopathic Hemolytic Anemia, written by Mary Thomas and Mary Scaldi. These articles help clinical readers understand clinical decision-making for the selected hemolytic anemias, through the synthesis of expert clinicians who illustrate this decision, let's start to briefly discuss the content of this review series with Dr. Robert Broski, the author of How I Treat Paroxysmal Nocturnal Hemoglobinuria. Dr. Broski, terminal complement inhibition is highly effective in PNH. How do these patients benefit from this treatment? And what are the important emerging therapeutic developments in this field? Thank you very much. Uh, hi, my name is uh, Robert Brodsky. I'm professor of medicine and oncology at Johns Hopkins. And thank you for, for those questions. PNH uh, is, is an acquired hemolytic anemia. It's a clonal disease. And terminal complement in inhibition was first approved for the use of PNH in 2007. Before then, the leading cause of death from PNH was from thrombosis. These patients developed severe clotting uh, manifestations. This would occur in the, in the liver, the abdomen, the brain, and uh, the median survival was probably about 15, 16 years for these patients. Terminal complement inhibition with eculizumab changed the natural history of this disorder and pretty much eliminated the clotting risk and greatly decreased the hemolysis as well. But even on eculizumab, 
a portion of these patients continued to have symptomatic anemia. Maybe 20, 25, 30% would continue to have symptomatic hemolytic anemia, not from intravascular hemolysis, but from extravascular hemolysis. But nevertheless, these patients were no longer dying of complications of the disease and dying from clotting. The drug was administered intravenously, and it had to be administered every two weeks. And many of these patients would experience breakthrough hemolysis with complement amplifying conditions such as infection or surgery or pregnancy. A big development uh, and improvement came along uh, in the last couple of years, and a new drug that also targets C5 became available. It's called ravalizumab. It targets the same epitope as eculizumab, and it's virtually the same drug. There's only four amino acid difference, but what that does is allows the half-life to be much longer. So now the drug can be administered every eight weeks. So this is much more convenient for patients, and it has decreased the cost of the treatment a little bit as well. It makes it much more easy to administer. It's much more convenient for patients, but it still has the problem of the extravascular hemolysis that the other terminal complement inhibitor eculizumab has. What's really exciting is that there are newer complement inhibitors that are proximal complement inhibitors. None of these are approved yet, but will likely be approved in the next year to two. Some of these are administered subcutaneously. Some of them are going to be administered orally. And these drugs have the advantage of not only dealing with the intravascular hemolysis, but also the extravascular hemolysis. So the future for PNH looks quite bright. Thank you very much, Dr. Brodsky. Dr. Berensen, you wrote the review article on how I treat cold agglutinin disease. So can you tell us which patients with cold agglutinin disease should be treated? What ineffective therapies should be avoided? And what about first-line and second-line treatments? Thank you. I'm Sigbjorn Berenson, a clinical hematologist from Norway. I'm working at, uh, as a senior hematologist and senior researcher uh, at the Haugesund Hospital in West Norway, and uh, I'm a former associate professor at the University of Bergen. And it's still true that uh, not all patients with cold gluten disease will need treatment, but I think with more efficient and more tolerated treatment, more patients should receive treatment than previously. In uh, unselected series, about 70 to 80% of patients have been treated. The first point is the selection of who needs treatment. And uh, the most important indication for treatment in colidogluidin disease is symptomatic anemia. Also, some patients with disabling cold-induced symptoms like uh, Raynaud phenomena, if those symptoms are severe, I think the patients deserve an attempt at treatment. And then there are some indications that uh, are still a matter of discussions, for example, uh, severe fatigue. Fatigue in cold gluten disease may be caused by the anemia itself or by the complement activation by itself. The fatigue at the moment remains a more controversial indication for treatment, but there is some evidence that patients with fatigue may profit even in the absence of severe anemia. 
And as Dr. Casula mentioned, it's important to avoid inefficient therapies. And worldwide, a lot of patients with cardiogluten disease are still treated with corticosteroids. The response rate to corticosteroids is probably below 20%. And uh, most patients who do respond will need unacceptably high doses to maintain the response. My opinion is that corticosteroids should not be used in the treatment of cardiogluten disease. But there has been progress. And to understand the modern treatment of cardiogluten disease, it's useful to emphasize that there are two major steps in pathogenesis. First, cardiogluten disease is a low-grade lymphoproliferative bone marrow disorder. And second, the hemolysis is totally complement-mediated. There are two targets of therapy, the clonal B-cell disease and the complement-mediated hemolysis. And the first treatment shown to be effective in cardiogluten disease was rituximab monotherapy. And experience shows that it's still the most accepted therapy worldwide. Rituximab monotherapy is able to induce remissions in about 50% of the patients, but the responses are most often partial, and the duration of response is disappointingly short, um, median about 11 to 12 months, with some variation very rarely between more than a couple of years. So we have been looking for better alternatives, and the first improvement that we tried to uh, evaluate was addition of fludarabine. To be short, that's a bit too toxic for most patients. Then we did a prospective study of rituximab plus bentamastin. That combination was able to induce responses in between 70 to 80% of the patients and about 50% of the responses are complete. The criteria for complete response include total regression of the demonstrable bone marrow disorder. And bendamastin rituximab was quite well tolerated. So when we are talking about uh, treatments directed at the B-cell disorder, I think the most efficient treatment in most patients will be bendamastin rituximab. But for more frail patients, rituximab monotherapy is still a good alternative. There may be some other B-cell-directed treatment in the pipeline or maybe a bit further than the pipeline. For example, a small Italian study showed activity of botesomib. The response rate seemed quite low, but after all, it is an alternative. It may be an active therapy. There are also some data that patients may profit from uh, ibrutinib, which may induce responses in, in most patients. But we have only a small retrospective study of ibrutinib, so it's uh, somewhat premature. The other main target of therapy uh, is the complement system and the classical complement pathway. And studies have shown that sutimlimab, a monoclonal antibody against complement protein C1S, will induce responses in most patients with cardiogluten disease. And I think results in terms of reduction of hemolytic anemia are very promising. 
and also as opposed to the B-cell directed therapies, which have a long time to response, the complement directed therapies are rapidly acting. The main drawback with complement directed therapies are first that patients will have to continue the therapy indefinitely. And uh, second, that it will not be efficient against the prosthesis or Raynaud phenomena because the circulatory symptoms, the ischemic symptoms, are not complement mediated. So to try to conclude, I think today the first line therapy should be the B-cell directed therapies, rituximab bendamustine in fit patients with a clear indication for therapy, rituximab monotherapy in other patients. As a good option in the second line, and maybe as, an, as a first line option in some cases, sutimlimab, the complement C1S monoclonal antibody, is a good uh, alternative. And uh, sutimlimab may also find its place in the first line in selected patients, for example, if you need a very rapid effect of therapy. Thank you very much, Dr. Berenson. Dr. Wilmer Barcellini has uh, written How I Treat Warm Autoimmune Hemolytic Anemia in collaboration with Dr. Fattizzo. Dr. Barcellini, for many years, uh, steroids and splenectomy have represented the only therapeutic tools available for the treatment of warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia. What's the current situation? And uh, what are the important emerging uh, therapeutic developments in the field? Thank you, Professor Cazzola, and uh, I'm Vilma Bercellini. I work in Milan, Italy, and I am an immunologist by training, but a clinician in hematology since more than 20 years. Well, uh, as you already said, uh, steroids and splenectomy are for many years have been the only treatments available for warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia. But there are still problems with these two treatments. Steroids sometimes are conducted for a longer period without knowing very well the side effects. And splenectomy is still characterized by a lot of drawbacks, including infections and more recently thrombotic complications. So these are still good options, but the problem is the patients that are relapsing, refractory to this treatment, and it is about a half percent of patients that relapse, and here we have to look for other treatments. Of course, rituximab, both at fixed dose 100 weekly for four weeks or at standard lymphoma dose, rituximab is now becoming the preferred second-line treatment for these patients, but it is not worldwide available. And of course, the percentage of response is about 60-70% of cases, but again, you have patients that relapse. The other very difficult situation are the very acute and severe cases, those that present with concomitant thrombocytopenia, the name is Evans syndrome, those that need transfusions. In these very urgent situations, it is really a challenge of what to do for the patients. 
Well, for what to do for refractory relapsed cases? We have now several very exciting new therapeutic approaches that target uh, the main mechanisms of the disease. The problem is that we have a lot of mechanisms, not only antibody, but also complement in some cases. We have the involvement, of course, of the immune system, the spleen, the lymph nodes. We have the very important uh, compensatory mechanism that is bone marrow activity. And, of course, we have to target the B cells. So plenty of drugs that already we already heard about, the, the cold forms, are also active in warm forms. But I would pinpoint one special drug, which is the neonatal FC receptor blockers. These are very interesting and exciting new drugs that can remove autoantibodies and make a sort of pharmacological plasma exchange, which is very close to physiological mechanism of removing of the autoantibodies. Other drugs are uh, the inhibitors of the spleen tyrosine kinase activity that are very useful in ATP, which is a disease similar to autoimmune hemolytic anemic with a different target. And these are very promising new drugs like fostamatinib. And we have also other actors in this uh, complex and changeable scenario, that is the bone marrow compensation. So in some instances, it is useful to use erythropoietin just to overcome a shocked bone marrow. So, daratumumab, ibrutinib, bortezomib, idegalizib, venetoclax for the secondary forms as warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia is not only primary but also secondary to several other conditions. And it is very important to identify this secondary condition because treatment is quite different in the primary and in the secondary forms. For example, splenectomy is not effective in secondary form, so it's very important to perform an extensive bone marrow evaluation and also CT scan or other investigations to identify the secondary forms. I think that in the next future, uh, the several targeting uh, agents uh, that we are trying in in experimental trials uh, will give us the opportunity to choose the best drug, uh, the best combination of drugs uh, in each patient, uh, just targeting with the predominant pathogenetic mechanism that is involved uh, in the precise moment of the natural history of this very heterogeneous disease. Thank you very much, Dr. Barcellini. And uh, going back to Dr. Brodsky, what's the current uh, standard of care in PNH? I think the current standard of care right now is ravalizumab, mainly because of the convenience of the every eight-week dosing. But there are proximal complement inhibitors that are likely going to knock that from the perch in the next one to two years. Okay, so on behalf of uh, All Blood Editors, I want to thank you again, Dr. Broski, Dr. Berensen, Dr. Barcellini, for uh, their presentations. 
and uh, we really hope uh, that uh, the How I Treat articles will uh, help uh, blood readers improve uh, the knowledge of the optimal treatment uh, of uh, these anemic conditions. Thank you very much again. Thank you for listening to the review series on platelets and cancer. To read articles, visit bloodjournal.org. This presentation is copyrighted by the American Society of Hematology.